Hey you and welcome. My name is Mike and in this whole podcast, yeah, 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 okay, you heard correctly. It's another one, if you can believe that. I have a couple of stories I've been just about dying. Uh, probably not a good word to use when all my st- stories are kind of, you know, about uh, murder. To, well, you know, I have been to tell you. Two stories of manipulation, of control, and of the aforementioned murder. Today in these tales, uh, we have two women, one of which was even called the female Charles Manson, which I mean, that's that's kind of a bit bit much like temper your expectations there, folks. The other called the female some bitch. Oh, wait, no, that's that's not right. That's just what I call her. Well, I'll let you be the judge of, of that one. These stories are all about control. Strong will versus weak will. Stories of how you can get others to act for you, including, you know, killing for you and breaking you out of prison, or how sometimes you just gotta do it your mother heckin' self. Excuse my language. Let's give it a go. The year, it is 2000, holy, holy moly, we're living in the future. Technology, you know, am I right? The year of Y to the 2 to the K, apocalypse, end times, my friends. Computers were going to cease working. The economy, get the gun times, the world was going to end. Remember that? Yeah, that was all kind of supposed to happen. Uh, it, unfortunately it didn't. Instead, uh, it was all very boring when the Y2K ball dropped with all the... Kind of all the climax of just like a wet fart. Shit still went on, the computers somehow magically just knew to add a one. To be honest, folks, it was just it was just a lot of fear-mongering, you know, for absolutely nothing at all. But, you know, that is my honest take. Controversial, I know, but I'm sticking to it. Anyways, uh, that is, that's not besides the point. It's not even in the same room as it. Let's talk SJP. Not, uh, not the one you're probably thinking of. Sarah Jo Pender was born May 29, 1979 in Indiana to Roland and Bonnie. She has one sister, Jennifer, and Sarah graduated in 1997 from Lawrence Central High School in Marangan, Indiana, Indianapolis. Man, my Indianapolis accent? Pretty good. Sarah Jo Pender was an honor roll student. So you know what that means. Fucking nerd. Then, you know, the future the future looked bright indeed for Sarah Jo, my friends. You know, she enrolled at Purdue University, where at Purdue, Purdue, she was going for a physics degree. She wanted to get physical. She wanted a lab coat. She wanted to work on particle accelerators and blow the shit out of atoms, creating black holes, parallel universes, harp, um, you know, the, the Mandela effect, all that great stuff that, uh, wait, where's my hat? I really should have my pinfoil hat when I'm talking about this kind of stuff. However, she ultimately dropped out, which is physics too, after just a year at university. She would later say, you know, she was just too immature for that type of uh, commitment at her age. Maybe she enjoyed partying, you know, the freedom of going away to college just a little too much, which is absolutely very fair. I myself, I went to college for a year, I dropped out, I worked for a year, and then I went back to college. It's tough for, you know, some people that 18 years of age to immediately, okay, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Almost child, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to, it's a bit of a commitment. And some people just don't know what they want to be at 18. Fuck, I I still don't know. But you want to know what's a real commitment? Life in prison. Now that's a hike. But 
let's not get ahead of ourselves. The main point here, though, is that Sarah, SJP, she was a very intelligent, real smarty pants. She ain't know how to do that. She was the brains of the operation. So she left college, she got herself a job. It was then, in the year 2000, the Y2K year, the aforementioned uh, wet fart year, that Sarah met Shrek himself in July 2000. Sarah, at just 21 years of age, met Richard Hull while attending a fish concert. Now, now Dickie over here, um, to tell you a little bit about him, he wasn't no swell guy. He was a, he was a convicted felon who already had a lengthy criminal record, misdemeanors, burglary and car theft, before he met Sarah. Let's see what he does after he meets Sarah. He was 23 years old at the time, only two years older than Sarah, and he was a bouncer at a local nightclub, where he would, if you acted out, bounce your head off a wall. Like, when I said Shrek, when I called him Shrek, I meant it. He was a big, ugly bastard. Now, things, they moved fast for Sarah and for Richard. He, like, he must have had some some real charm to him. You know, leather jacket popped collar and all that kind of stuff. Because judging by the pictures, like when you see pictures of Richard Hull, the vibe you're gonna get is... <laughs> and considering that within just you know, a couple of short months, Sarah and Richard moved in together, fair play, fair play to him. Some man for one man. Actually, actually multiple men. Uh, I mean, he was six foot five, 300 pounds, an offensive lineman if there ever was one. Like, he had even gotten scholarship offers to go play football, which he pissed away due to drugs and booze. Sarah, though, she was she was attracted to that. His size. Big guy for you. And she, she said, you know, he, he, he made her feel safe. I mean, no one would fuck with this guy, that's, that's for sure. And so, they ended up sharing their home with another couple, paying the bills. That was Andrew Cataldi, 24 years old, and his girlfriend, Trisha Nordman, 25 years of age. Now, both Andrew and Trisha were actually on the run from drugs charges in Nevada, so you got just like your dream housemates right here. Well, they felt like a glove because Richard and Andrew soon started selling drugs together out of their house. And I'm not talking like, you know, light, harmless shit, like the devil's lettuce. No, 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 no. We're talking, like they were hardcore, like scary drugs. The drugs that make me cry at night. You know, I wake up in a terrible sweat thinking about them. I go, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Those kind of drugs. And so, you know what that means. You know where this story is going. Someone is gonna unzip their pants, get the toilet roll and take a squat over a fan because this won't end well. And so, like you probably guessed, shit hit the fan between Richard Hull and Andrew Cataldi. And so what happened in their little two-bedroom house at 906 South Michael Street, Indianapolis, it's a little fuzzy. But we will get into what likely happened. At around 6pm on the 25th of October 2000, an employee of the Teamsters Union at 869 South Meridian Street, just south of downtown Indianapolis, that employee was getting rid of some trash. He opened up the dumpster, you know, in the alley out back. And at first, you know, he opened it up, it was it was getting pretty dark, you know, it was, it was autumn. And so kind of squinting uh, under the orange streetlights, he looked inside the, the dumpster and he was like, what the, is there a homeless guy sleeping in the dumpster? Then he saw the body inside was not moving. 
then he also saw there was more than just one set of legs. He called the police uh, quite a sight to see. Two bodies, two bodies were found dumped inside like garbage. Ev evidently, whoever they were, were, they were not thought highly of. So, following the discovery, the police released images of distinguishing tattoos the two bodies found had to, to help identify them, identify who they were. Anybody know anybody with this kind of tattoo? Give us a ring ring. And so, guess what? Relatively quickly, the two, the two were identified as Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman. It was their neighbor who came forward not only to identify the victims by their tattoos, but also pointed out to the police, oh yeah, they live with another couple, Richard Hull and Sarah Pender. Then another witness would come forward to say he had seen two people loading up and covering up the bed of a pickup truck at around 3 a.m. on the morning of the 25th of October outside the Michael Street home. So you got the victims identified, you got who they lived with, and you've got possibly how they were transported from the house to where they were found. But the witness who saw the pickup truck and it being covered up, he couldn't tell, you know, if the people loading were male or female. But the cops instantly knew where to go. They tracked down the home they shared and they began to do their own little investigation. I mean, when I say little investigation, I mean the entire investigation. The police, they got a warrant for the abode and inside that Michael Street home, they found blood lazily cleaned up on the carpets, part of a shotgun shell and missing couch cushions presumably removed as they were covered in the parts of you that are supposed to be, you know, inside of you. A warrant was issued for the arrests of Sarah and Richard. And so, so what I just told you, uh, it sounds a lot more simple than it actually is, is folks. Let's get into what we think could and likely did happen in that Michael Street house. What happened between Richard, Sarah, Andrew, and Trisha? Now, they were they were murdered on the 24th of October, but the day before the murders, on October 23rd, Richard had borrowed his friend, Ronnie, his pickup truck, likely the same pickup truck the witness later saw outside the house. Now, the borrowing of that truck, Richard borrowed it for the purposes of clearing out the basement to they wanted to get rid of all the shit in the basement in the Michael Street home to make a meth lab. Literally, like a Breaking Bad style meth lab. Though on the TV show, I think they did it better with an Orvi, just saying. Richard Hall, you like, take a look at him. He isn't giving you Walter White vibes, more like Walter Shite. And so, the following day, the gruesome twosome, that is Richard and Andrew, they were getting ready to cook. October 24th, the day of the murders, it's believed it was nothing uh, special. It was a Tuesday, and that morning, Richard and Sarah, they did a little errand running, as most couples do, a few bits bobs to pick up groceries, banking, of the like. Oh, and there was just one thing that the couple had to buy. A 12-gauge shotgun. Never leave home without it. Actually, what they, what they really bought that day was soda, condoms, and a gun, the shotgun, and some ammunition. Just like your regular shopping list, you know, shotgun, a couple of cans of Coca-Cola, and some rubbers. I mean, talk about blowing your load. 
Anyways, I guess because of Richard's criminal background, he couldn't actually buy the stuff himself. So Sarah was the one to actually pay for the firearm and the ammunition, which were 12 gauge deer slugs. According to Sarah, later, this was a huge mistake. I've made a huge mistake on her part. She's made quite a few already. So then later on, Richard and Sarah, they met with Sarah's parents. They hung out with them for the rest of the day. And then they went back to the house on Michael Street, reportedly around 11 p.m. Then Sarah, you know, late, almost midnight and a, you know, a late autumn day, she decided to go for a walk around the neighborhood. Yeah, as I said, uh, you know, bit of a weird time to go for a walk. And the neighborhood wasn't exactly the safest, probably not the best idea for a, a woman to walk around there by herself. But that's what she said happened. She was out of the house pretty much all day. Now, conveniently, while she was out of the house, an argument broke out between Richard and Andrew. They were making meth and well, as, as you do, <laughs> as you do, of course, and they started having a go at each other. See, Richard's sister, Tabitha, she apparently owed Andrew some money. No other details or specifics are given. We can just assume she owed um, she owed Andrew money for, for drugs or something. And Andrew, he decided to take that out on Richard. Like, when is your sister going to cough it up? You know, when is she going to cough it up? And so on and so forth. Anywho, things started getting heated between the two of them. And according to Richard, Andrew was aware that... They had just purchased the shotgun earlier. A nice, nice little shotgun you brought today. Do you mind if I snoop around? He went into Richard and Sarah's bedroom where the gun was stored. Richard, no, no, you don't, went after him. Now here, it's unclear whether the gun was already loaded or if one of the men loaded it then. But what we do know is that a struggle ensued, which ultimately gave control of the firearm to Richard. Big fucking guy. And so, with Richard having the shotgun, he shot Andrew in the chest and then turned the weapon on Trisha Nordman and shot her in the chest and the head. Just cause, you know, um, I guess, as you, I killed one of you already, may as well kill you too. Later, Richard would testify that Andrew threatened to kill his, quote, fucking family. And then who just conveniently waltzes in just after the murders? Well, with a big shocked headner, Sarah Friggin Pender. You guessed it. What's this? I see, she says. Two dead. Hmm, interesting. Now, now riddle me this. Sarah did not know Richard very well. They've only been dating for about six months. And they live together. So her boyfriend, her big ugly brood of a boyfriend, just shot and killed her two roommates. And she happened to walk in as the smoke was still in the air. Now, I don't know about you, but most people, normal people with like a normal head on their shoulders would probably be uh, slowly back out of the room. Maybe tell the police because this cannot end well for anybody if you don't. <laughs> but Sarah, not at all, not at all. She wasn't having any of that. Her first thought was to help dispose, help Richard dispose of the bodies and then clean up the guy's mess and then throw away the rest of her life at 21 years of age. I mean, she already bought a gun and gave it to a convicted felon, so, I mean, you may as well fucking cut your losses already. But no, she, she kept going. She was committed. Fair play to her. She has more commitment at, at, at covering up a double murder than she does at college. So, Sarah, she walked in, and I imagine it's literally a bloody mess. Those uh, deer slugs, no joke. 
and the house was pretty small, so I'm sure there was a fine spray pretty much everywhere. All we know then is that Sarah, she rolled up her sleeves and got to work. She helped load the two bodies into the back of the borrowed pickup truck, where Richard, he then drove the bodies to a whole three minutes away and dumped them in a public dumpster. Now, um, like, I'm not saying committing and covering up murders is some kind of art form, but I mean, come on, come on. Like, that's just, that's just lazy. I mean, are you even trying at this point? Like, a three-minute drive away and dumping it in a public dumpster. Come on, now. So while all of this was unfolding, um, Sarah, after the murder, she just went back to her, to her job, like, right? Just another day. Nothing to see here, folks. Meanwhile, Richard, he borrowed his neighbor's plug adapter to get a carpet cleaner to work so he could, um try and clean up, um, I guess. I mean, the police would later find the mess. He didn't really put too much. He put as much effort into dumping the bodies as he did cleaning up the mess in the house they lived in. So the next day, the 26th of October, Richard and Sarah, they drove to Noblesville to return the truck. And it was reported that while there, Richard burned multiple blood-soaked items. What they were, and how many, has never been disclosed. And so, while they were out of town, the police, they ransacked the home on Michael Street they found. Blood and a shitty job of trying to clean up the evidence. I mean, come on, like I said, they, they didn't even try. They were asking for it, come on. Maybe they just wanted to go to prison. Richard was arrested that same day at his mother's house. He denied, he denied it all. I don't know what you're on about, lads. Get your story straight before you come knocking on my door. But, um... The police, you know, they kind of just told him, hey, uh, we found your shitty old job of cleaning up the place, and we have witnesses of you and Sarah buying the shotgun, well, her buying the shotgun the morning of, and so he broke like a straw and confessed to everything. The next day, while Sarah was giving her statement of events, she handed over a pair of his blood-soaked pants, which were tested and linked to the crime scene, as traces of the victim's blood were found on both of them. Sarah was like... She was, you know, kind of trying to help the police out from the get-go. She was like, yep, I have his bloody pants. What do you want to know? Now, Sarah's statement, though, for her involvement was simply after, like, what she did wrong was after he committed the murders, what she did wrong was not calling the police. But, quote, instead stayed with him out of love, fear, loyalty, and sheer stupidity. Which, I mean, it's, it's kind of sweet. Like, oh, she's just an innocent kid who helped cover up the murders, a double murder, so yikes. Sarah was also arrested for the double homicide. Now, now this is when the story takes a turn. Um, while in custody, awaiting trial, Sarah, she became close with another inmate, one Floyd Pennington, who was a convicted child molester, if you can believe that. She, Sarah, sure knows how to pick him. I mean, if you didn't already think she was fucked up in the head, this is a dead giveaway. Sarah and Floyd, they began writing to each other. Eventually, both agreed to fake illnesses in order to meet up at the hospital so they could meet in person and hopefully get some alone time together. I mean, Floyd, you molest kids, maybe you'll molest me. Their plan worked, and according to testimony from Floyd, Sarah confessed to him at that time in the hospital to her part in the murders saying she influenced Richard to do the deed while keeping her own hands clean. 
And during her trial, this was the prosecutor's angle, citing this is when Sarah got the, you know, the name, a female Charles Manson. She used her charm, her womanly guile, and her influence to manipulate Richard Hull to commit the murders. Floyd, he said everything she, she told, you know, uh, that, that, that she'd confessed to him. And also, there was a letter, apparently written to Richard from Sarah. And in that letter, Sarah thanked Richard, thank you so much, for covering up and taking the blame, saying she didn't mean to kill them and blames an acid trip for her actions. Like, that was the story, apparently, according to the prosecution, that she was high on acid and got Richard to kill them for no reason. Right. And a forensic document analyzer also confirmed in her testimony that this letter was indeed written by Sarah. Sarah's now defense adamantly denied any responsibility that no, she did not write that letter. And that, you know, the defense said Richard forged the letter to get him to get a lighter sentence for himself, you know? Say Richard is Richard is making up shit to make Sarah look bad. Richard pleaded guilty and avoided trial. He was sentenced to two 45-year sentences. In August 2002, Sarah Pender was found guilty and sentenced to 110 years in prison for manipulating Richard into committing a double homicide. Now that is the why, but it's not really the what. That's kind of just really the setup for the main part of Sarah Jo Pender's story. So Richard, right, he would later appeal his sentence. And in doing so, in appealing the two 45-year sentences he got, he recanted his statement about the letter being written by Sarah, and he admitted he got a fellow inmate, a guy named Logan, to write the letter in exchange for protection from Richard. Hold the bull, they called him in prison. So now Richard was saying, yeah, that letter, it was actually forged. Sarah's defense was right, I had a friend forge it. At this time, Richard also admitted he shot both victims alone and Sarah was not present for the actual murders. But he did, he did confirm she helped him with dumping the bodies afterward, which Sarah herself admitted she did do. So was Sarah only like guilty of covering it up? Not like the whole, the whole high on acid bullshit was just that bullshit? He hoped that his honesty and coming forward would grant him a, a lighter sentence. Uh, it didn't. It actually got his sentence from 75 years without parole to 90 years without parole. <laughs> Whoops, shit out of luck, Richard. Um, but let's take another look at the evidence against Sarah. The letter in question, the one that was supposed to be written by Sarah thanking Richard for, for what he did, was handed from Richard directly to his lawyer. Now, obviously, it's an odd letter. For one, why would Sarah write a letter thanking him for killing for her? Also, why would a smart girl put something like that in writing in the first place? No accompanying envelope was ever included or found. The letter was printed when all, all the other letters from Sarah were, were written in cursive. Her fingerprints were not found on the letter at all, but Logan's and Richard's were. And Logan was who Richard was now saying, claiming he had in fact written the letter. It seems like there's a lot of proof here that Sarah did not, in fact, write the letter claiming responsibility for the, for the double murder. And later on, Floyd, the child molester, his testimony against Sarah came under fire when they discovered a snitch list which had multiple people on it. See, Floyd, he made the list, he made the cut, 
Um, because he said he would go on record, he would wear a wire, and he would disclose any helpful information in order to reduce his time served. I mean, so he was basically going around trying to rat on anyone he could to reduce his own sentence for the uh, aforementioned child molestation. So his testimony was immediately discredited. He would, he any chance to rat on anyone and everyone, he would do... And I guess he would also make bullshit to, to be able to do it. I mean, I've heard that if you commit crimes against kids, like any, any time at all in prison is going to be made a hell of a lot harder. And um, honestly, rightfully so. So on top of already having probably a difficult time in prison, he also decided to be a snitch. Um, so yeah, wow, he was really not doing himself any favors. But uh, to note, Floyd Pennington was, was released from prison for a time because shortly afterwards he was caught and arrested for rape. So FP is about to get F'd in the B. And so with all this weird evidence coming forward about Sarah, well, she still remained in prison. Until, until 2008, that is. But she wasn't released. In August 2008, Sarah was serving her time at Rockville Correctional Center, which is a maximum security prison. And there, she used her sexuality to start a relationship with a corrections officer named Scott Spittler. Ah, uh, Scott Spittler, never good when your name rhymes with, uh, ah, <laughs> uh, never mind. And so, with his help, she started to plan her escape. He provided her with a cell phone which gave her access to her friend and a previous cellmate, Jamie Long. And Jamie also helped her plan her escape. Like, Sarah was, I mean, it comes back to Sarah being called the female Charles Manson, that she was able to manipulate those around her to help her do what she did, even though we're not even sure if she did do what she did. You know, it's, it's, it's well, she was very good at man manipulation, so I guess it's, it's not out of the realms of possibility that she could ma manipulate someone into murdering for her. Sarah told this Scott Spittler that she would pay him $15,000 once she was out. Out she got. I mean, I get that she, she doesn't think she belongs here, but that will just make things worse for you, so... The day of the escape, Scott had Sarah go to the gym where he hid civilian clothes, she changed, she put her prison uniform into the ceiling tiles, and then she made her way to the fueling area, where she met with Scott, and um, she was she got into his van and hid inside his van, and then they simply just kinda sorta drove out. No one checked his car. Maximum security me balls. This is a holiday camp. If that's if that's how easy it was to escape this prison. Anywho, Jamie Long met Sarah in a parking lot where Scott dropped her off. Uh, Jamie gave Sarah some money. And Sarah, she set off starting a new life by the name of Ashley Thompson. She was able to travel freely to Chicago. Now, Sarah Pender is described as a white female, five foot eight, weighing about 200 pounds with brown hair and blue eyes. She has two distinctive tattoos. One is a target on her upper right leg and a faded butterfly on her chest. If you have any information about where she might be, please call 911. There she found a job. She found a place to live. She was starting fresh, um, all the while going undetective, even as a wanted woman. I mean, she, she even got herself a pretty decent job. Like, you would think, you know, if you're a, a wanted person, um, you're, the jobs you're going to get are going to be flipping burgers or, you know, some some job where you can hide easily. No, she got a decent job. She was an estimator for, for a contractor. 
Although maybe that was actually not a good idea for Sarah. She probably should have kind of tried to go under the radar. Because about four months after she escaped prison, America's Most Wanted ran a rerun of her story on December 22nd, 2008. And her neighbor uh, in, uh, in the apartment building thought, hmm, she looks mighty familiar. And kind of, you know, was like, well, no, it's not her. Well, maybe it's her. Oh, she hummed and hawed of, uh, over it for about two hours. And before she called the police and reported Ashley Thompson, that she had just seen Ashley Thompson on the TV under the name Sarah Jo Pender. Sarah Jo Pender was arrested that same day. Initially, she denied. Sarah, no, I get that all the time. You know, no, I'm not Sarah. <laughs> Happens to me all the time. Um, unfortunately, DNA, fingerprints, and such. Yeah, no, you are Sarah Jo Pender. So, yeah. Her accomplices, by the way, Scott Spitler, dude, change your name for fuck's sake, and Jamie Long, they were both convicted as well for helping her escape uh, prison. Scott, he would serve eight years for assisting a criminal, official misconduct, sexual misconduct, and trafficking with an inmate, while Jamie Long got seven years, back in for you, pal, uh, for aiding an escape. Bet they are regretting helping Sarah Jo Pender now. Scott's wife sure wasn't too happy about that. He has lost everything he ever had. For what? He's embarrassed his family, and I feel so ashamed, and I feel so bad for those people that trusted him. Because he's let everybody down. I guess he can find out on the 6 o'clock news, just like I found out, that he'll be getting divorce papers here in a couple days. And upon her re-entry to prison, Sarah was held in solitary confinement for over five years. From 2018 to present, she is back at the Rockville Correctional Facility. She already escaped from there once, pal, maybe somewhere else. Sarah, she is still behind bars to this very day, and she has exhausted all her appeals. Um, but, and this is like another twist in the case, is the, prosecu the prosecutor, her original prosecutor, the one who called her the female Charles Manson. He has now changed his tune with all the new evidence. The fact that the letter, it's it's... Almost, it's kind of sort of confirmed to be forged that Floyd was a piece of shit, an unreliable witness. And now the prosecutor believes Sarah didn't get a fair trial. That the two most most things that went against her, two pieces of evidence that went, that went against Sarah and got her convicted for so long, they've both been discredited. There was even a recorded phone conversation between him and Sarah's mother admitting that, yeah, maybe he got it wrong and that he will help Sarah get out of jail in any way he can, or at least get her an, a new trial. The man who put away Sarah Jo Pender for 110 years now believes she should be free. I think the only fair thing to do to correct an injustice, a major injustice in this case, is for the prosecutor's office to agree to set aside the convictions. To date though, in 2023, no dice so far. Currently, uh, Sarah has a sister, Jennifer. She has an online petition helping to, to try and bring her sister to get real justice. It currently has 7,500 signatures since it was created over three years ago. So not a whole lot there. I mean, kind of hoping for a bit more than that, but it is what it is. Shine. I mean, anyway, at the end of the day, the girl, she either helped, uh, you know, carry and dispose of victims. She still did that, and she still went, you know, to work the next day like it was no big deal so she's definitely not innocent but it is really weird how richard was saying that she had manipulated him into killing two people 
when Sarah later did manipulate people into helping her escape from prison and they later got sentenced. I mean, all in all, whether she did do it or not, she was pretty manipulative at the end of the day. But that's the end of that old story. She's definitely not innocent. I'll leave it there. And neither is the next person I want to tell you about. And if you thought that story was, was gruesome at all, wait till you get a load of this one. So first of all, we're gonna learn, learn some Italiano. The word scrivo. It means, uh, it means to write. And this, it's fitting because this story, you could not write it. You could not make it up. It's batshit. Donna Scrivo lived in Michigan, classic. Um, it's, this is like that running theme I have in my YouTube videos where certain states kind of keep coming up again and again and again for the weirdest cases. Michigan is definitely one of them. And she lived with her son, Ramsey, and her husband, Daniel. Now, Ramsey, the son, he had more than his fair share of troubles, and his mother, Donna, straight from H-E-Double Hockey Sticks, was one of those troubles. But let's start with the where. St. Clair Shores. It sits on Lake uh, St. Clair, if you, can, if you can believe that, and it's part of the greater Detroit metro area. And that was where Ramsey Scrivo was born in 1981, to parents Donna and Daniel. Ramsey had one older brother, and they both went to an all-boys Catholic school. Donna, she had high expectations for her children. And Ramsey graduated in 1999. He then studied accounting. He went on to work for a few, for a few accounting firms. Uh, however, as he reached his late 20s, he realized that it just wasn't for him. Uh, being an accountant, just, just not for him. Especially when his work ethic was criticized by his boss. Um, so he was like, you know, F this S, I'm out of here. And from there, uh, Ramsey Scrivo decided to go into his father's, Daniel's, painting business. So far, so good. Or at least it is in the way that I'm telling it. Because guess what? In 2014, Ramsey Scrivo vanished. Dun dun dun. On the 25th of January, at around 6pm, Ramsey left the house he lived in with his mama Donna to go get some cigarettes and, and he never returned. Oldest trick in the book. I see what you're doing here, Ramsey. Or was it? The next day, Donna reported Ramsey missing to the police. She told them she had already gone around town to the bars and the other places he, he frequented and saw neither hide nor hair of him. Now, she wasn't too worried at the time, though. He'll turn up eventually. I'm sure he's grand, you know. Though she had been calling and calling his, his cell phone and he wasn't answering. Police, they alerted the surrounding communities to be on the lookout for Ramsey. That winter now, it was exceptionally cold. And so they were worried if he's if he's not inside somewhere, you know, he could he, he could be in danger in, in the weather that's out there. And they also got in touch with Ramsey's probation officer. See, about a year before, in 2013, Ramsey got in trouble with the law for assaulting one of his friends at the bar. Ramsey, he had some problems with drugs, with alcohol, and he had a history of mental health issues. Uh, his probation worker, upon learning that Ramsey was nowhere to be found, he too became worried about where he could be and what, what sort of trouble he could be in. The police checked in with who they knew he had been in contact with shortly before he left, 
no dice, no one, no one had seen him. Donna told the police that Ramsey left with his wallet to get some, to get some smokes. In his wallet were two credit cards and his driver's license. So police say they, they tracked down his, his bank cards and they asked, um, they asked Donna for a picture they could provide you know, to the media to, to put the word out there. She never gave them one though. Donna didn't want the media involved. Hmm, I don't want as many people as possible looking for my son. Okay. Now Ramsey's phone, it was eventually found in front of a local's house, not too far from his own, his own place. The local knew nothing, no idea why the phone was there. And his phone provided, you know, no information as to where he could be either. But his phone also showed no, and I mean none, no missed calls from Donna. When Donna had said she'd tried to call him again and again. Neighbors of Ramsey's, they would say they hadn't seen him for days before he was reported missing. And one neighbor would tell the Popo police that she smelled a chemical odor coming from Ramsey's condo, the condo he shared with his mother. In 2006, 12 years earlier, Donna and Daniel, Ramsey's parents, they actually bought him that condo. They did so as they were worried, they were worried about him. He was suffering with depression, he had anger issues, and he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. They wanted to know he wasn't too far from, from the coop, which, which was good. They had a good reason to be worried about Ramsey as, you know, at times he was on, he was on his medication, he was off his medication, and he had some tough side effects, you know, to deal with to boot. Sometimes Ramsey would be convinced someone had put poison in his drink or, or that a nanochip was, was in his tooth listening to his every conversation. In 2010 then, Ramsey got into a fight, a fight which, which left Ramsey with a head injury after he cracked his head on the concrete. And this is something we see again and again, the, these head traumas exacerbate mental health issues. And they sure as shit did for Ramsey. He became more out of control, drank more, became angrier, got into trouble more. Issues that, you know, at one stage had been down um, and were, were, were treatable, now not so much. This would eventually lead to him being charged with assault and on probation and getting the mentioned uh, probation worker. He had to report to the worker, the officer frequently, and he was required to do drug and alcohol tests all the time. Unfortunately for Ramsey, his mental health got worse when his father passed away in May 2013 from a long old illness. Now, now Ramsey and his dad, Daniel, they were really close together. As I said, they worked together in the painting business. They were best friends. The impact of losing his father, it was massive, absolutely massive on Ramsey. He had said multiple times before that if his dad dies, he's going to follow. Daniel Scrivo, he protected his son Ramsey from Donna and Donna's expectations. Expectations that were dashed when he decided to become a house painter and leave accounting. As he could be a danger you know, to himself and to others, already was and had been, and not just that, there were also suspicions about Daniel taking his father's morphine. And so family members, including Donna, they filed for a petition to get Ramsey hospitalized. He was hospitalized and he was diagnosed with psychosis. At the same time, Donna filed for legal guardianship of Ramsey. Ramsey, at this stage, obviously, he was old enough to not have that. And she applied for it, you know, first and foremost, to make sure he takes his medication upon release. 
So after his release, uh, Donna and Ramsey, they stayed together at the family home, just the two of them. But, booty time. Then, due to an electrical fire, which was very interesting, they had to leave. Now that fire, it started in the basement, where Ramsey slept. Donna, she got out of the house and she called the fire, the fire department, the fire boyos. But when they arrived, she was just like, oh yeah, there's a fire. Like, she wasn't like, oh my god, my son is in the basement. She didn't really give a shit that Ramsey was still in there. Nice. Now, luckily, the firefighters, they managed to get Ramsey out just in the nick of time. And the fire was later deemed to be suspicious. A little bit sus, my friends. Um, but the investigation, it never went any further than that. So, with their house burnt down, the two of them moved in together into Ramsey's condo, which was a very bad idea. I mean, Donna was extremely controlling over Ramsey, and to her, she would say, she, you know, it was, it's for his own good. She has to make sure he takes his medication. She has to, you know, make sure he stays out of trouble. But if there was someone who should have been taking care of Ramsey, Donna was not that person. I mean, just looking at her, she looks like a wicked bitch, a uh, uh, witch, sorry. Donna Scrivo was born in 1954 in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Texas, again, that's another one like Michigan. And she always wanted to become a nurse. And so she became. After meeting Daniel, the couple got married in August 1978. And they had their first child together, Jason, Ramsey's older brother, two months after their marriage. A <laughs> shotgun wedding. Then they moved to Michigan, which was Daniel's home state, and settled in St. Clair Shores. Ramsey coming along three years later. In 2003, Donna, she had a massive heart attack. And during her operation, she, she almost died. The whole, that whole experience had a huge effect on Donna. She became forgetful. She became super anxious. And she had to give up her job nursing in the hospital. And so she became a home care nurse. Now, Donna's sickness and Ramsey's various uh, mental health issues, they weren't the only problems uh, in the Scrivo family. Daniel, the dad, he, was, he himself was sick for most of his life. Uh, he was coping with hepatitis C. He had gotten it when he was a teenager and he needed to have open heart surgery. And hepatitis is something that would later kill him. And so, as 2013 waned, which was a tough year for Ramsey, losing his dad, getting over his head injury, he actually started doing better though as the year came to a close in late 2013. He, he was taking his medication, he was doing his therapy, he was fixing up his life. Now, Donna still had guardianship over 32-year-old Ramsey, but in June of that year, 2013, Ramsey planned to petition the court to terminate the guardianship in six months if he cooperated with treatment and medication and, most importantly, followed his mother's rules. Don't mess with Mama Donna. But family members started to become worried about the two of them living alone together. Uh, Donna was... Oh, bit of a nightmare, to be honest, and he was under her thumb. Jason, the older son, Ramsey's older brother, he had long moved out of state. And with Dan dead, it was just Donna and Ramsey, and they were not good for each other. But maybe it wasn't just them. Eight months before Daniel passed away, Donna, she went to a high school reunion back in Texas. She went alone, and maybe, just there, she met an old flame from the past. She returned to Michigan after, but was constantly texting this other guy. So, after Daniel died, maybe she wanted to move back down south. 
Though Ramsey, he wasn't into that, into that idea, like Michigan was his home. And then he disappeared in January 2014. After Donna wanted to move back to Texas and just around the time, he would have been free of the legal guardianship. So the search was ongoing from when Donna reported him missing on the 26th. Neighbors were questioned and they had some interesting olfactory insights. Now his phone, it led nowhere and no one had seen him. It was like he, he just vanished. Then four days would pass, taking us to the 30th of January. A lady driving on a snowy rural road had seen something just off it. A collection of black bags. Three of them, to, to be precise. And so she, she pulled over and had a goo inside. And she saw what appeared to be intestines. Oh, gross. And so she got back into her car and uh, freaked out. She kept driving where she saw another bag and what appeared to be a, I mean, I'm amazed she looked inside this next bag, lads, to be fair, because she saw in this one a human head. She immediately contacted the police and soon more bags were found. The bags were, uh, there were human remains chopped up. A jigsaw blade with four saw blades were also inside. Clothing, which seemed to, uh, to belong to a woman, a Coke ball and some charred paperwork. Police determined the body to be that of a white man. Now, the the, <laughs> the case was treated as a homicide from the get-go. Uh, don't know what else, what other conclusion you'd come to if finding a chopped up body. I mean, I suppose it could be natural causes. What happened to him? His head fell off. Missing people from the surrounding counties were the first ones to be checked to see if any of them could be the victim. But then fingerprints were taken from the body and ran through the system. A match came back. It was... Ramsey Scrivo, he had been chopped up. His autopsy was carried out on what was left of him, good luck. Uh, his death was determined to be asphyxiation, though the autopsy also showed a massive dose of Xanax in his system. Four times what he was prescribed, which the Xanax alone would have killed him. His body had been cut into 14 different pieces and his right arm was never found. A witness came forward, called the police, and reported to have seen a woman with an SUV. She was the one who dumped the bags. A nearby gas station captured CCTV footage of this woman driving a 1990 Chevy Blazer. Guess who the mystery woman was? Dun dun dun, Donna Scrivo. She was arrested the next day as the main suspect in Ramsey's death, and she was charged with the dismemberment and removal of her son's body. Police got search warrants for both the vehicle in question and Ramsey's condo. Now, there was a bit of a problem finding that Chevy Blazer, which was the vehicle used to, to dump the bags, um, because as it, as it turned out, Donna, she had offered the car, you know, for charity in Detroit. She, she was literally giving the vehicle away. She wanted to get rid of it as soon as possible. Here, this car is for charity. Don't mind the smell or the stains, you know, they make the car go faster. Funny thing is, uh, a few days prior to her getting rid of her own car, she also donated a 2006 Ford Focus, which was Ramsey's car. Once the car was retrieved, a forensic search was done and Ramsey's blood was found inside that SUV. But the car was determined not to be the crime scene itself. Uh, no, that was the condo. As soon as the officers entered the premises, the smell of bleach was overwhelming, just like the neighbor had said. 
And upon further forensic investigation, blood evidence was recovered from multiple locations inside that condo. Ramsey's blood was found in the bathtub, his bedroom wall, the porch, and the hand railings of the house. The most gruesome place being the bathtub. Not that there was a, a lot of blood there or anything like that, like it had been scrubbed, but there were signs of burning in the tub. While Donna was in custody, nail clippings of hers, as well as a hair sample, they were taken. And Donna's DNA was found on the Coke bottle that was found in one of the garbage bags. But that was it. Her DNA wasn't found on Ramsey. Still, there was a lot more, to, you know, to go. Her DNA was found inside one of the bags, right? And she was seen, you know, on CCTV, probably being the one who dumped him. She also hadn't reported him missing in the most honest of ways. And also a local Lowe's store stated that on the 27th of January, Donna bought a jigsaw saw uh, during the day and she later returned it to the evening as she had some problems with, with charging it. That same brand of jigsaw was found in the garbage bag. But there were some problems with the serial number of the saw. Uh, police could not be 100% sure it was the same one Donna had purchased. See, um, they had proof she purchased the same model of saw, but the serial numbers num numbers were different. But, I mean, come on, I don't that gives her the benefit of the doubt over here. But, but why? What made her commit this crime of chopping up her own son? You know, gruesome thing to do, let alone to do to your own son who had many, many troubles throughout his life. So... Why? Why did she do this? Did she just want to get rid of him so she could move away to be with this guy, this old flame down in Texas? No idea. Because when this case went to trial in May 2015, Donna Scrivo pled not guilty. The prosecution, they said the Xanax found in Ramsey's system was Donna's prescription. It was filled with a 90-day supply in January, but had only one pill remaining when Ramsey's murder was discovered 30 days later. So either she was popping them back, popping them like they were Skittles, or she was popping them in to Ramsey. Donna, she needed a way to subdue her son, and so she likely drugged him up, they said. And then, just before the murder was taking place, Donna bought carpet shampoo, anticipating a mess. That's premeditation. It was, though, though, when Donna herself took the sand, um, nope, she would say, no, ooh, 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 it was not premeditated by her at all. She had her own little story to tell. She told the jury, the attorneys, and the judge that on the 25th of January, a masked man broke into the condo and went into Ramsey's room to kill him. Donna said she was down in the basement doing some laundry, and upon going upstairs to the condo, she found the front door open, and then she went in to check on Ramsey and found a man in the bedroom. The man then tied her to her own bed and killed Ramsey. Then he made her dispose of the body and told her if she didn't do that, she would die as well. According to her story, it was the idea of the masked man to donate the cars to, to sort out um, Ramsey's... Ramsey had life insurance to, to try and sort that out, to buy the jigsaw for the dismemberment, and so on and so on. Like, this masked man, apparently he came into her condo, their condo, with a to-do list for Donna's, and this is what you gotta do. But no, no, she was told to do it. She didn't do any of this herself. Of course not. The mysterious man was apparently in the house with her for five days, even after she reported you know, the, the, her son missing. He was still there with her, just, just chilling, watching Netflix. 
Donna told the court while on stand that she was handcuffed to the bed most of the time. She was only let free when the man needed phone calls and errands to be done, like reporting him missing. Did you recognize anything about that person's voice? No. Did you recognize anything about the person's gait or the way he walked? No. Did you recognize anything about his mannerisms? No. Do you believe you had ever seen that person before? I don't think so. He made you go to Lowe's? Yes. For the specific purpose of getting something? Yes. And that something was what? If there was something on me, if I did what you said, some of it would have showed on Ramsey. Some of me would have showed on Ramsey. Some of him would have showed on me. And you didn't bag and tag my clothes or anything. As you can imagine, the prosecution took a lot of pleasure in ripping this story apart. But to this day, Donna says she is innocent. She didn't kill her son. It was the masked man. One thing that does remain is her DNA was not found on the victim, nor his on her. But I mean, this is like the shittiest. Like, if you're gonna try and make up a story about why you why you um didn't, how you couldn't have done it, maybe just you know inventing the story of a masked man, probably not the best. You know, if you have time before trial, I'm sure you could she could have done better than that. And as a defense, they tried their best. They tried their best. God love them. They brought up multiple problems with the case. Uh, how the police, you know, they didn't follow up every possible lead. The lack of DNA evidence on Donna's body. And how could, you know, a tiny small woman like Donna lift big old Ramsey into the tub? Though, I mean, I'm sure she had a couple of days. These were found, though, to be, to be reaches by the defense. And after a short deliberation, the jury found Donna Scrivo guilty of first-degree premeditated murder. On July 23rd, 2015, the judge sentenced her to life in prison without parole for the dismemberment and mutilation of a body, removing a body without the permission of the medical examiner, and, most of all, first-degree murder. Donna, she remains in prison to this day. As I said, she's, she's still claiming innocent of this horrendous crime. I mean, there was no reason for her to do what she did, nothing to gain from a troubled son who was on the up and up. I mean, he wanted to leave the house himself. She didn't need to kill him if she wanted to move to, to Texas. This is clearly premeditated and thought out. So a spur of the moment, you know, rush of anger, I don't think happened. Why? Who knows? Maybe there was a masked intruder, you know, the invisible man, you know, the one-armed man. Um, but more likely, this is um, complete and utter hog shit, I guess to say. Impressions and appearances were something very important to Donna, um, so maybe she just wasn't getting the look from her son she wanted, and so he had to be removed. Um, but Donna herself, she is quite a quite an image, quite an image herself. Evil bitch being the one that comes to mind. Thank you so much for listening to this old podcast. I hope you found it as interesting listening to it as I did telling it. Uh, and you know there will be another one in a couple of days. Two podcasts every week. Uh, if I could ask you for anything, it would just be please um, subscribe, follow, leave some, you know, some five-star ratings and reviews. That's incredibly helpful to me. Um, I really couldn't ask you for anything more than that. Um, so yeah, thanks so much uh, again, and I'll see you. Well, no, I won't see you. You'll hear from me in a couple of days, but until then, look after each other, look after yourselves, because I love you. Mike out. I still do the wink even though you can't see me.